Well, good evening. It's good to see you all. Glad we have this opportunity to worship God together. Before we get into our lesson, I wanted to tell you about a good friend of mine. He lives in central Tennessee. And for those of you who know that area, there's a lot of history there. And he himself, his family had been in that area for generations upon generations. And his wife's family actually can trace back to an ancestor who came over on the Mayflower. So their family has been in America really since uh, for quite a while. And my friend was telling me that his dad, for a certain portion of his life, really was invested in trying to fill out his family's genealogy. And he would go down to the courthouse and to the library and try to get all the documents he could and the records and try to tie things together and see who he was related to and then who that person was related to and try to trace it all the way back. And it turned out after years, he had spent all this time and all this money trying to figure out this genealogy of his and his sons and his wife. And it really became almost an obsession for him to the point where he was spending way too much time and way too much money trying to look into these things. And then he realized that it really wasn't that important. And he finally just came to this epiphany of, well, why am I doing this? Why am I spending all this time and this money doing this? And he stopped that effort. I'm not saying there's anything wrong with that effort. I don't think it's sinful. It is interesting. Interesting. I've done one of those DNA things myself where you go and you see, you know, cousins you never knew about and you see where your DNA comes from and the world and all that. And it's pretty interesting. But at the end of the day, you know, it's not really make or break for me where I come from or where we come from. But Matthew and Jews in the first century, for them, genealogies was a lot different. It was something that really could be make or break. And therefore, when you go to the Gospel of Matthew, when you start reading, that's the first thing Matthew starts with. And his whole goal is trying to write to a mostly Jewish audience, showing them that Jesus is the promised Messiah of God. And we're going to see a couple of things from Jesus' genealogy in the book of Matthew that really stand out and ought to be some lessons for us, both about Jesus and in our day-to-day lives as Christians. So I hope you'll turn there. Matthew chapter 1. Matthew chapter 1, right after that page in your Bible that is either blank or says the New Testament. I always thought it was interesting that one page in your Bible covers about 400 years, and there's very little written on it. Um, Always something cool to think about. Right after that, you got Matthew chapter 1, and we're going to look at some lessons from the genealogy of Jesus. And the first thing we're going to see from the very first verse is that Jesus is the ultimate fulfillment of, of God's promises. Look at Matthew 1.1. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. And it's interesting how these two names are lifted out of the genealogy and placed up top. Now, of course, Matthew starts with Abraham. He doesn't go all the way to Adam like Luke does. He starts with Abraham. But notice David. David doesn't come for another 14 generations, but he's there at the very top of the genealogy. That's how Matthew identifies Jesus Christ, the son of David, and David even gets preeminence, the son of David and the son of Abraham. And the reason, part of the reason why this is the case it is, because Jesus, the fact that Jesus is a descendant of both Abraham and David really says something, and God is trying to draw attention to this fact. Two of the most significant and well-known promises from God to Israel revolve around Abraham and David. So when Matthew comes on the scene, he's writing this gospel inspired by God to a mostly Jewish audience. He says, this is who Jesus was, the son of Abraham and the son of David. 
Let's look at these promises fulfilled in Jesus. The first one, we're going to start with David, because that's the one Matthew lists first, is found in 2 Samuel 7, beginning in verse 12. And I hope you'll turn there in your Bibles if you haven't. 2 Samuel 7, beginning in verse 12. And this was a promise given to David from God. 2 Samuel 7, 12 through 16. And notice what God says to David here, this promise that he makes. He says, when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, that is when he dies, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, he shall be to me a son. And then he goes on, he says, when he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men and the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him, as I took it from Saul, whom I put away before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. Now part of this prophecy is fulfilled in Solomon, David's son, who comes from his body, who builds a temple for the Lord, and of course is rebuked for his iniquity. But its ultimate fulfillment of this prophecy is found in Jesus Christ, who sits on David's throne forever, who establishes David's kingdom forever. Part of Jesus Christ, the Messiah, the Savior, coming into this world and being a descendant of David is a promise, part of a promise that God made many years before Jesus' birth. And the importance of this prophecy is seen how it's quoted throughout the Bible at various times. We read in Psalm 132, verses 10 through 11, if you'd like to look there, and there it says, For the sake of your servant David, do not turn away the face of your anointed one. The Lord swore to David a sure oath from which he will not turn back. One of the sons of your body I will set on your throne. And then that passage we read uh, not too long ago, Brother John read it for us from Isaiah 11, 1 through 12. This language of a shoot from the stump of Jesse. If you remember, Jesse is David's father. And this shoot from the stump of Jesse will have roots, it will bear fruit, and the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And that's Jesus, this root from the stump of Jesse, Jesse ultimately fulfilled in this genealogy that we read about in Matthew 1. The fact that Jesus is the son of David, the descendant of David, is so important to the overall a narrative of God's scripture that when the angel comes to Mary to announce to her that she's pregnant with the only begotten Son of God, he comes to her and says this in Luke 31, sorry, Luke 1, 31 through 33. He tells her, Behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son. You shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him, notice this, the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. This is so central to the identity of Jesus that when this angel tells Mary, even though she's a virgin, she's about to conceive, he includes this information. This is the one you've been waiting for. This is the one your people have been waiting for all this time. He'll sit on David's throne. He'll reign forever. In Revelation 22.16, if you'd like to turn there, Revelation 22.16, this is... The last recorded time we have in scripture of Jesus revealing himself to people, of of him self-identifying, if you will. And notice what he says there, Revelation 22, 16, how he identifies himself. 
After all that's happened in the book of Revelation, all, after all that he could say about himself, what does he point to to try to show the proof that he is who he says he is? He says, I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you about these things for the churches. Notice how he identifies himself. I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright morning star. He could have pointed to anything. He could have described himself as of anything. We've got so many options throughout Scripture. And he says, I'm the one that people have always been waiting for, the one who sits on David's throne. In fact, the fact that Jesus is the son of David is central to the gospel itself. In Romans 1, Paul says that he is a servant of the gospel. Romans 1, 1 through 5. He says this gospel of God he promised beforehand through his prophets and the holy scriptures. And he starts describing what the gospel is really all about. In Romans 1, verse 3, concerning his son who was descended from David according to the flesh, and was declared to be the Son of God in power, according to the Holy Spirit, the holiness, sorry, according to the Spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. You see, the fact that Jesus is a descendant of David, it's easy to overlook when you read this genealogy, but it's central to his identity, it's central to the gospel. Paul would say in 2 Timothy 2, verse 8 to Timothy, remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, the offspring of David, as preached in my gospel. Paul makes it clear that this was a central part of what it means for Jesus to be the Messiah. He's the son of David. But it's more than that. Remember, Matthew calls him, he lifts these two names above the genealogy, which were extremely important to Jews. They were waiting for the right person to check the right boxes, to do the right things so that they could be the Messiah, so that he could usher in God's kingdom, and he finally was here. The first was, he's the son of David. Also, he's the son of Abraham. Remember in Genesis 12, 1 through 3, one of the greatest parts in the whole account of Scripture, the whole unfolding narrative, you have God coming to Abraham and telling him to get away from his home and from his family. And he says, to go to a land that I will show you. He didn't even know where he was going. And he got up and he went. But the last part of that promise there in Genesis 12, 3, is that I will make your descendants as innumerable as the stars or as the sand on the seashore. Part of that promise to Abraham, the father of the faithful, is that his descendants will be many. And then in Genesis 22, 18, God fleshes out this promise a little bit more. He reveals a little bit more about what this promise is really about. It's not just that Abraham is going to have a lot of descendants. It's more than that. Genesis 22:18, In your offspring, God tells Abraham, all the nations of the earth will be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. And you wonder that and you think, how? You know, if we trace our genealogy, I would say all of us in here could say that we've been blessed by God. But if we trace our genealogy, we're not, necess- I mean, we're not related to Abraham. At least most of us, probably all of us, depending, aren't related to Abraham. How in his offspring are all the nations of the world going to be blessed? Paul tells us in Galatians 3.16 that this promise is all about Jesus. He says the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring, Paul says. It does not say and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one. And to your offspring who is Christ. You see, two of the foundational promises of the Old Testament, right here in the first verse of the New Testament, we see that these are fulfilled 
in Jesus Christ. And how is this blessing made to all the nations of the world? Because if you keep reading Galatians 3, in Christ Jesus, we're all sons of God through faith. And if many of us have been baptized into Christ, have put on Christ. And if you're in Christ, Paul says, you're Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. God blessed the world through the offspring of Abraham. Not offsprings, offspring, Jesus. He's the one who blesses the world, who came into the world to take away the sin of mankind. What can we learn from this? Just this first verse in the New Testament. I think there's a lot we could grab from this on a personal level. But overall, I think it's important to remember something mentioned by Paul in 2 Corinthians 1.20. In 2 Corinthians 1.20, Paul is trying to tell the Corinthians, look, it's not that I'm weak-minded, it's not that I flip-flop, because there were some plans to go and then they got canceled. He's like, look, that's not how it is. I promise I'm trustworthy, God is on my side. But he goes on the side about the promises of God. And he says, just as I'm a servant of Christ and you can trust me, you can trust Jesus. And in 2 Corinthians 1.20, Paul says that all the promises of God find their yes in Jesus Christ. In other words, all the promises of God come to fruition, are fulfilled in Jesus Christ. God isn't a man like one of us. We can be sure of what he promises us. And we see that in the very first verse of the New Testament, right here in the midst of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, that God keeps his promises and we should trust him and look forward to him delivering on what he said. The proof is in the pudding, the the saying goes. We can look at Jesus and know that God is going to do what he said he would do. He did it with Abraham. He did it with David. He's done it all through Jesus. And whatever he's promised us through his word, will one day come to be. The next thing we're going to see from the genealogy of Jesus is that God can use inglorious situations for glorious means. Some people say, you know, God can use your mass for his purposes. However you want to word that, we see that in the genealogy of Jesus. Look at some of these verses here with me. The genealogy is pretty long. You've got 14 generations from Abraham to David. And then 14 generations from David to exile, then 14 generations from exile to Christ. So we're not going to read all of it, but look at a couple of details here, which is really, really interesting. Matthew 1, verse 3, and we'll jump around a little bit. In the middle of this, uh, well, I'll just start in verse 2. Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac the father of Jacob, Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers. Notice verse 3. And Judah the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar. And Perez the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Ram. Ram the father of Aminadab, Aminadab the father of Nashon, and Nashon the father of Salmon. Salmon the father of Boaz by Rahab, and Boaz the father of Obed by Ruth. And Obed the father of Jesse, and Jesse the father of David the king. And David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. And just in those few verses we read, there's a couple of situations. If you're familiar with your Bible and some of these Old Testament connections, you see some of these situations uh, where this genealogy is uh, appealing to or pointing back to. And that idea that God can use situations or things, circumstances, when you look at them, you say there's no redeemable quality to what happened here at all. And then you read the genealogy of Jesus and you see that through this mess came the one who's going to undo all messes and save mankind from their sin. 
There's a couple of ones that should come to the top of our mind. The first one is that situation with Tamar, there in verse 3, that Judah fathered these individuals by Tamar. Maybe you're familiar with her story there in Genesis 38. Tamar was married originally to one of Judah's sons, and he couldn't produce for her a child, and he died. So then another one of Judah's sons became her husband, as was the custom, and would later show up in the law of Moses. He chose to willingly make sure that his wife did not get pregnant. And then he was struck down by God for it. And then a third son came, and he did the same thing. And the Bible says he was an evil man, and his life was ended. And there she was, heartbroken. Three men who, for whatever reason, refused to give her a child, which was in that day the pinnacle of an existence for a woman. And she was heartbroken. So if you remember the story in Genesis 38, she was in her mourning clothes, and she went out by the road, Morning with a U, not early in the day. And she went out by the road, and some people thought that she was dressed as a cult prostitute. Do you remember that? And Judah, going by, ended up requesting her services as a prostitute, and they laid together. And later on, she ended up becoming pregnant. But when Judah was told that Tamar, his daughter-in-law, was pregnant, he was furious. He said she should be burned But then she sent a message and said, whoever's staff is this, this is the man who I became pregnant by. And Judah saw that it was his own staff. And I don't know if you remember what he says. He says, she's more righteous than me. Because he failed in his obligation to provide for her a child through his son. That was such a cultural and, and even religious duty, and he failed it. And you look at that situation, and you read it, and you read about the heartbreak of Tamar, and you read about the sin of Judah, and you think there's no way anything good will ever come from that child or from that situation. And then in Matthew 1, the promised child, the one who came to save us all, that situation shows up in his genealogy. And it's not that God 100% approved of it. It's not that God orchestrated it. But God was able to use it for good means, for righteous means, for the entrance of Jesus into the world. And then even... I don't know, it doesn't say her name, Bathsheba, but she's the wife of Uriah, remember, with whom David committed adultery and with whom they bore Solomon. And she's even mentioned there in that whole situation. And you think about how messy that situation is. Not only the adultery, but David even sending Uriah to the front of the battle lines so that he could die. He essentially murdered him. And you look at that and you think there's no way anything good can come from that. Their first child even ended up dying because of the sin. And here in the genealogy of Jesus, God in the flesh, the perfect man, this situation comes up. And it's more than that. It's more than just these messy situations. It's also Ruth. And you think about Ruth. I mean, she was a great, outstanding individual, but she was a Moabite, wasn't she? She wasn't one of God's chosen people, but still she had that opportunity to show up in the genealogy of Jesus. And you think about Rahab, who's mentioned in the New Testament a couple of times. We all remember Rahab's profession before she started following God, right? She was a prostitute. She was a harlot. But she believed in God, and she acted on that faith. And because of her help, the Jews were able to overtake Jericho. She, too, is mentioned here in this genealogy. Not only is that the line of David, but that's the line of Jesus. And it's more than just messy situations, more than that, an unprecedented five women are mentioned in Jesus' genealogy. 
And there's a lot of debate about why that might be, why that might be the case. Maybe Matthew is simply hearkening our minds back to some of these Old Testament situations. But I think it really is more meaningful than that. It shows us that God's kingdom, this kingdom built by this Messiah, really is for everybody. Even women. Even women in messed up situations. It's not that God approves of sin, but we can go to God and he'll deal with our sin through Jesus and we can be saved as we faithfully follow him. And we see here just a little glimpse of the fact that the blessings of Jesus are for female and male, every race, every ethnicity, and can be experienced no matter how convoluted or sinful our past really is. In Jesus' kingdom, at the great dinner banquet that Luke talks about in Luke 14, 15 through 24, there's a seat at the table for all who are willing to respond to the invitation. And this ought to be comforting for us. Even if you feel like you've been an outsider your whole life, even if it feels like day in, day out, you're reminded of your sinful past, even you and your life and your past can be redeemed in Jesus Christ. And he can make you whole. He came to give you life and life abundant. And if you find yourself in a messed up past situation, it turns out as you read the Bible that you're in good company. And if you give that mess to God and let him rework it, he can for his glory. And it's a reminder for us that the church isn't just for people who look like us or think like us. The church is for everyone who is willing to accept the invitation of the gospel. And we ought to work to make it that kind of place. What does that take? Well, it might take us getting out of our comfort zones. It might take us approaching somebody whom otherwise we'd never be willing to approach. It might take us being willing to share the gospel with somebody we think is unredeemable. Because we need to realize that ultimately we're not the judge God is. And he desires all people to be saved. We see that even in Jesus' genealogy. The last thing we're going to look at from the genealogy of Jesus this evening is that Jesus' birth is one of a kind. And this is something that I think can be easy to miss if you read the genealogy quickly, as we sometimes do. I don't know about you, but every new year I try to read the Bible through. Maybe some of you guys are kind of on one of those plans. We've got some plans upcoming, unannounced plans, to do something similar here at Orange Street this year upcoming. But the hardest part of these plans is when you get to the genealogies. If we're honest, you know, Second Chronicles, Numbers, and even sometimes in the Gospels, you think, okay, these guys, I know who these guys are. It's really not that important. They're easy to speed through, but notice this little detail here in Matthew 1, verse 16, if you would. Um, Matthew 1, 16, and this is the end of the genealogy, right before Matthew explains how many generations are between each. It says, Jacob, the father of Joseph, and Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born who is called Christ. So Mary is that fifth woman who's mentioned in this genealogy. But according to my count, up to Matthew 1.16, from Matthew 1.1 to Matthew 1.16, the word father or fathered or beget, depending on your translation, is used 39 times. Every, at least once every generation, this word is used. Yet the pattern of the genealogy is disrupted with Jesus' parents. Notice that Joseph did not beget Jesus. Joseph did not father Jesus. Instead, it says Joseph was the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus Christ was born. You see that there's this interruption 
in this pattern. And this is easy to miss. You might say this is a minor detail, but it's fundamental to the unfolding narrative of salvation history. The fact that Jesus is not Joseph's son according to the flesh is important. Though, of course, he is Joseph's legal son and he's Mary's son according to the flesh. And this actually fulfills multiple prophecies. This fulfills, in some ways, the very first prophecy regarding Jesus and the salvation of man. If you remember all the way back to Genesis 3, after Adam and Eve fell and they ate uh, the, fruit of the, knowledge of the, tr- the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, God's dishing out all the punishments to Adam, to Eve, to the snake, but in reverse order. And he tells the serpent that the serpent's seed will, the, the head of the serpent, sorry, will be crushed by the seed of woman. In Genesis 3.15, some people call this the very first prophecy about Jesus. And you think about that, that's really odd language. Only twice, according to my research, is woman's offspring mentioned in the Bible. It both is mentioned in relation to Eve. But it says that her offspring or her seed will be the one who bruises the head of the serpent. And this is a reference to the virgin birth of Jesus, who did not come from man's seed, but was born of a woman. Remember Isaiah 7.14, Isaiah says, Behold, and God says, I will give you a sign. The virgin will conceive and give birth, and you shall call his name Emmanuel, which we know means God with us. In Galatians 4.4, describing the birth of Jesus, he says that Jesus came and was born of a woman under the law. This idea of Jesus being born of a virgin, being born of a woman, not of man's seed, is crucial to who Jesus is. And we see that Jesus' birth is one of a kind. Instead of being begotten by man, for all, like just all these generations before him, just like you read in the genealogy up to that point, Jesus is the only one not begotten by a man or biologically fathered by Joseph. Instead, he's born of Mary, born of a virgin. He is Emmanuel. He is God with us. And when we read this genealogy, even though it's easy to speed through, it can be easy to skip. When we read it, we come away knowing that Jesus is sent by God. Jesus is the fulfillment of God's promises. He is Emmanuel, God with us, God incarnate on earth to save mankind from their sins. He's Eve's seed. He's Abraham's seed. He's David's seed. Ultimately, he's the only begotten of God, the one on whom all of us can go in faith and receive forgiveness. My buddy's dad was right. In the grand scheme of things, his genealogy really doesn't matter that much. But the opposite is true in the case of Jesus. In the grand scheme of things, the genealogy of Jesus means everything. It shows us that he is who he says he is. It shows us that he's the fulfillment of God's promises. It shows us that God can use messed up situations for his glory. It shows us that there's a seat at the table for anybody who's willing to accept the gospel by faith and obedience. It shows us that Jesus' birth is one of a kind. And he died for us. And he was raised on the third day. And through him, we can be saved. Of nobody else can we say that. But we see it presented beautifully here in this genealogy. With that in mind, the question, I hope, is apparent. Jesus undoubtedly is the Son of God, 
And that means he's Lord of Lords, he's King of Kings. And if he's Lord of Lords and King of Kings, that means that I ought to be submitting to him. That above all, my allegiance is to him. And I know that for most of us that is the case, and I hope it continues to be. That we continue to see this Jesus, this Jesus presented here in this genealogy, and all of his glory and might and godliness, and we follow him every day of our lives. But I know there are some here who have yet to do that, who have yet to see Jesus for who he really is, who have yet to accept Jesus as the Lord of their lives, to be buried with him in baptism, to repent of their sins, to start a new life with him, the one in whom all of God's promises find their fulfillment. If you've not yet put Jesus on in baptism, today's the day to do it. Maybe you know this about Jesus. You know he's the Lord. You know he's the Christ. You know he is who God promised to send. But you find yourself discouraged. You find yourself in a place where it's hard to follow him. We'd love to pray with you to help you. To show you that together it is possible. And even if we don't have a reason to respond to the Lord's invitation tonight, I want you to think about and remember how very special this Jesus is. And how he saves all of us by his grace, and as we cling to him, we can be sure that God's promises will be fulfilled in our lives. If you have a need to come forward, please do so while we sing this song.